How you doing? Fantastic. My name's Dave. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, great to have you here. It's great to be with brothers and sisters, uh, just to gather and uh, love being in community and hearing the Word of God and worshiping God. Um, we are starting a brand new year. We're about to start a brand new series, uh, a vision series around who we are as a church, where we're going, uh, and why we're doing that. And uh, I just felt today as I was really, I guess, meditating on this and thinking about where God was going to take us, that he was going to lead us. Uh, Today, he wanted to speak to us from Matthew chapter 16, um, from verse 13 to 18. So if you've got your Bibles, can you go there now? Or if you're on any particular device... Before we read that, I don't know if anyone was here yesterday at 6am. Hands up if you were here at 6am yesterday for Awaken. How good was that? Who's got some slightly sore abdominal muscles this morning? Anybody? Uh, We had 60 people here to start our program Awaken where we get up, we exercise and are pressing into the the Word of God and prayer and seeing what God is doing, desiring to grow as disciples. And it was just so good. So I just want to publicly, I guess, honour Brian for a moment in the way that he, the effort, and Carly and the effort that they've done to get that up and running. Where the heck are you guys? Somewhere. There they are. So, yeah, come on. So good. Um, So if you haven't been a part of that, talk to them and get around that. So Matthew 16 verse 13 to 18 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is or who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What an awesome word. What an awesome way to start our year. Uh, During the holidays, uh, the kids have obviously had their their school holidays and um, sometimes you run out of activities at some point in time. And uh, my oldest son, Bailey, came up to me probably two weeks ago and said, Dad, I want to build a house. And I said, fantastic. That is outside of my skill set, Dan. So he said, I want to build a house. So we had, we had some materials, like an old uh, outdoor, you know, dining table thing. So we got the hammer out, we smashed it up, and we had wooden slats, and we had some star droppers. So we put the star droppers into the ground and made a lovely little rectangle, and we gathered the wood, wooden slats, and Bailey's like, what are we going to nail it in with? I was like, gaffer tape. Because <laughs> if all else fails, use gaff. So we gaffed it up and it was, the wall was being built and it looked fantastic. And Bailey's like, is this going to hold? And I was like, of course it's going to hold. It's gaffer tape. Gaff holds all things together for good. And uh, so we were holding it. We, we did it and it was looking fantastic. We ran out of slats. So we had a bit of a break, went inside. And then the rain came the next day. And then we went outside and, of course, 
uh, gaffer tape doesn't do as well as nails in the rain. And Bailey discovered that the whole thing had fallen down. And so he said, I want to build a house. Like, let's fix this. Let's go to Mitre 10 and get some stuff and build a house. And uh, just a couple of days later, we had a bit of a meeting, uh, church meeting with some leaders. So April Hills kids, Cody and Annika were over. And uh, you know when you're, you're meeting with adults in a room and the kids go outside and it's quiet for a really long time? Anyone been there before? And it's great, don't get me wrong. But at some point in time, you've just got to say, it's been quiet for a really long time. There's, I should probably go and check what's happening because if it's that quiet for that long, something out of the ordinary is happening. So anyway, I go outside and half the shed is empty. There's, there's a, a fruit bowl, a big fruit bowl, uh, which has a stick in it. There's quick set concrete bags that are out there. There's the hose. And there they are just going hard pouring the quickset concrete in, they're mixing it, and all the girls are involved, and they're, they're mixing it, and they're walking over, and they're pouring it in, and Bailey and Cody are there smoothing it out with their hands, and uh, as I came around the corner, I thought, oh, this looks bad. Bailey just goes, Dad, the problem was we didn't have a base. <laughs> and I think it was Cody April who then said, he goes, yeah, we needed a strong foundation. And this preacher was just like, amen, <laughs> preach, you need a strong foundation. If you're not going to, you know, if you're going to build on the sand, if you're going to build on the dirt, then that, you know, it doesn't matter, that thing's fallen over, and it had fallen over, and as I was, I just couldn't help but my mind buzz over to, you know, Matthew chapter 7, when a very wise man is sitting on a mountainside, spitting some very wise words, and when he finishes that, he says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise person who built their house on a rock. And I was like, you know what? We got to build on a rock. Whether you're building a house, whether you're building a cubby house, or whether you're building something for the kingdom, if we're not built upon the rock, we are going to fall down. And it poses a really interesting question for us as a church as we start to look at our vision and where we're going as a church and what we're doing fundamentally, what are we building on? That is what you should be asking. What are we building on? That is what we are asking. That is what we need to continually come back to over and over and over again. And in the passage that we have before us today, there is a powerful insight into what the church is built on. Matthew 16. Let me just set, uh, the, uh, let me set the scene a little bit. Jesus is doing something weird in this passage. And if you've grown up in the church, you might have read this before. You know that great proclamation, on, you are Peter and on this rock I'm going to build my church. But so often what happens with Scripture is we just read through stuff that we, we like fly past that and we forget to stop hop out of the car and take a look around so we understand what Jesus is doing. Because the environment is just as significant as the encounter in this case. And if you know anything about Caesarea Philippi, this is a place that Jewish people did not go. This was a sacred, pagan, spiritual site. So Jesus rallies his disciples and he goes north, as far north as he's ever gone, 
with his disciples, and he rocks up to this town, Caesarea Philippi, a town uh, that Herod the Great had built this huge temple to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And so the, the Roman people would worship Augustus at this site. But more than that, and hundreds of years before that, this was actually a site where pagan worship would happen to the half-man, half-goat God who played his flute. You might know the, the images. He was the god Pan, the god of fertility. Half-man, half-goat. And the, what they believed was that uh, these gods would go to sleep in the winter in the underworld and that in the spring, Pan would come up playing his flute and he would bring the gods of fertility with him to pour out blessing upon the land. So they would worship, and when I say worship, I'm not saying they're gathering in a building with a guitar and some drums singing songs to Pan. This is pagan worship. This is stuff we can't talk about in this room because there's children here, but it is detestable, sickening depraved, disgusting acts that they would do in honour of the fertility god, let that be a clue, half man, half goat, Pan. This was this site. And because it was so depraved, Jewish rabbis were like, you don't go there. If you're a God-fearing Jew, you, you stay right clear of there. Otherwise, you've got like months of religious rituals to get yourself clean. You don't go there. And this side, I'm going to show you some pictures of it because it's going, to, it's going to paint a better story. Bailey, can you show them? So this is, this is an artist's impression of what it looked like in Jesus' day. So it's this huge rock face. And we'll go to that next one and what it looks like today. So it's this rocky area. Keep going. And what you find is this enormous cave or these grottos. And if you go there today, you'll see inscriptions still written on the, on the rock about worship to this god Pan, right? And so what they believed was that uh, Pan rested, and he actually rested in the cave. This cave was so deep, this massive cave. Can you see that in the center there? It was so deep that they actually believed it was a gateway to the underworld. And the historian Josephus said there, there was so, there's so much water in there, he goes, it cannot even be measured how deep this, this is, right? And so this is the site Jesus takes. They believe that Here's this great cave, this great uh, grotto where people would come and worship and throw sacrifices into here. And they believed that this was the very gateway that Pan would come out of in the spring to awaken the gods of fertility. So catch this. The ancient pagan people believed that this site, Caesarea Philippi, was literally the gates of hell, the gates to the underworld. Jews didn't go here. Jesus rocks up and he says to his disciples after doing some teaching by the Sea of Galilee and refuting Pharisees and doing what he's been doing, he's like, hey guys, I got a great idea. Let's go to the gates of hell. Can you just for one moment just picture these disciples, right? Jesus has buzzed them out a lot over his ministry. Now he's like, let's go to a place where we shouldn't go, this place of ancient pagan ritual stuff, and let's just chill here for a bit. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but my mind is a, I, like 
my mind works in images and pictures. I cannot help, but the closer that they get, the more sort of steely, strong, steady, reserved, determined Jesus kind of gets. And you can imagine that the disciples seem to get more and more nervous, more and more twitchy, more and more unsure of what's going on. And I just have this picture of Jesus standing right here with his disciples, staring at this cave, this this gateway, what the ancient people believed, just strong and firm and silent. As if he was lost in another world, as if he was lost in a cross that was to come. And his disciples kind of twitchy and nervous, like, we shouldn't be here, Peter, what the heck, man? Why are we here? You can just imagine that. But, you know, there's that nervous, and they see how serious Jesus is, and it's kind of like, well, we're not going to say anything. So I just picture this silence. And then Jesus, at one point, sort of just breaks his silence. Gaze still fixed. You can picture him going, who do people say that I am? staring at the gates and the disciples sort of in their nervousness you can just imagine them being they just start to spout off everything they've heard whispered as Jesus has been doing his ministry and as they've been following oh you know some some say Elijah some say this some say Jeremiah some say other one of the prophets like they just start talking John the Baptist and then Jesus I just have this picture of him in this moment sort of breaking his gaze and just turning and just staring at the disciples. And just being like, you know what? Yeah, people say that, but who do you say that I am? A direct, powerful question. And I love that in this moment where there's been this nervous fidgetiness, they're not sure, no one can give a direct answer. It's like Peter has this moment of clarity. Like the scales fall from his eyes and like he gets filled with the Spirit and he just stands up and he just looks Jesus in the eye and he just goes with that same strength, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Such boldness, such clarity, such conviction as he just declares this to Jesus. And how much can you then picture Jesus in this moment? Stern and serious, just the little smile, just creeping into the corner of his mouth as he's like, come on. Like, yes. I, found, I picture all of him. I picture the angels sort of sitting there biting their nails like, what's he going to say? And then Peter says that and they're like, yeah, like dancing, excited, pumped that finally the penny has dropped. And I love what Jesus says when he says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because this was not revealed to you by humanity. This is revealed to you by the Father in heaven. And all of this is taking place in front of the gates of hell. And then he turns to him and he says, and I tell you, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell that you're looking at right now that you're afraid of, that that is weird and uncertain and causing trouble, they will not prevail against it. They will not prevail against it. I love this passage. And it actually throws up some interesting take-homes for us, for us now and for them back then. Because it asks a couple of questions, which I think we, it then has implications for us. And the first thing that I just want you to grab in this 
quick little moment is this. Who's building the church? Who's building the church? Jesus is building the church. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I, everyone say I, will build my, everyone say my. That's not me talking, that's not you talking, that's Jesus talking. He's building his church. Thank God for that. The history, the future, the certainty, the surety of the mission of God is safe in the hands of the one who is building it. He is not using gaffer tape. He is strong and he is sure and he is certain. And so for us as a church, we have confidence in this hope. Confidence in the anchor for our souls that Jesus is the Christ. He is building his church. He is large and in charge, and we can have that great surety of faith, no matter what comes our way, that he is doing it. Amen? He is building his church. The next thing, which seems a silly question to ask right now, but what is he building? His church. But it's interesting, the word he uses. Because in the West, we have particular ideas of what church is. The word he uses is a Greek word, ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia. And ecclesia actually means gathering for a purpose. It means the assembly for a purpose. So it's not even a religious term. It's a term that was used when people were gathering like for a civic function or if military were gathering uh, together ready to go out to war. That's what ecclesia means. It means gathering. It means assembly. It doesn't mean a building with a steeple. That's a German word, kirch. How did I go, Leona? It doesn't. The ecclesia means the gathering. So even in ancient Israel, if you read the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they talked about Israel, they would talk about them as the ecclesia. When they were spread around the world, they were talked about as the ecclesia, these gatherings of the greater whole, which is Israel. And so we right here are an ecclesia. We are an ecclesia of the body of Christ, of the greater gathering, the greater assembly. And so when we have these conversations, I have conversations with people all the time who say, yeah, I'm, f- I'm pro-Jesus, man, but I'm not keen on the church. Jesus, yes, church, no. And I'm like, how? It's his church. He's the head of his church. He's building the church. How can you say that you are in Christ but not of his body which he is building? How can you not be a part of the ecclesia that he is creating? If we are in Christ and we are called to gather, we are called to assemble. And this is what he's building. This is his work, gathering people together. And it has some really interesting implications that I want to point out, point out to us just quickly, okay? The first one is this, that we saw with Peter that faith is revealed, right? Faith is revealed. Jesus says to Peter, he looks at him, And he says, blessed are you, for this was not to reveal to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. Faith is revealed. Faith is something that God is putting on the hearts of humanity. God is pursuing humanity. Christ is pursuing us. And when our hearts are strangely warmed and attuned to him, we know that he is the one 
bringing faith, revealing faith, causing faith to rise in our hearts. That is an awesome, beautiful, incredible thing. And if our hearts are being strangely warm, then we need to ask that question of, who do we say that he is? Because he's standing there knocking on the door and he's saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you see? Do you see like Peter saw? Do you see that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? And if you've never actually spoken those words and you've never had that moment, you've just kind of been checking it out. You're like, I don't know. Can I ask you today, after this sermon is finished, I'm going to ask a question that says, do you want to say that? Do you want to give your life to him as Lord and Savior? Do you want to say yes? Do you see it, what he sees? And if you do, then join the ecclesia. Join the gathering where you can be strengthened, where you can be encouraged, where you can be empowered, where you can be built up in the faith. Because while we don't build the church, we have a role to play in the church. Look at Romans chapter 10. And we're just going to read from verse 14. How then... Well, let's go from verse 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We get to participate in the glorious work that God is doing. We get to be the jars of clay carrying the mighty treasure. We get to, as the Ecclesia, carry the good news of the gospel through which he will bring faith. Join the Ecclesia. Get involved in the Ecclesia. Say, yes, I want to be a part of this gathering. I want to be built up and I want to be sent on mission. Because the church is at the center of his heart. The church is at the center of Jesus' heart. Why is it that Jesus took the disciples to this place right here, right now, to to birth his church in this moment? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to do this, like, at the temple in Jerusalem on holy ground? This is a fairly significant moment. On this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Isn't that a pretty awesome moment? Shouldn't that happen on holy ground, not this sort of ground. And I think he's making a statement. He's actually saying that my church has a purpose. The church is not so that Christians can come in and have a lovely Christian social club. That is not why the church exists. I think he did it right here because he wanted to show his disciples that the purpose of the church is not for the religiously elite. It is for ordinary people who catch a revelation of the love of God in Christ for the purpose of storming the gates of hell, for the purpose of seeing the world transformed. It is not about coming and getting my religious fill and saying, great, I'm off. I like that. I like that. I didn't like that. I might go and suss that one out. No, the church is about mission and moving forward in mission. And here's how we know it. The third thing is what is he building on? What is Jesus building on? This is fascinating. He says, uh, you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church. What rock is he talking about? And scholars have gone back and forth. I'm going to try and get through this quickly. Some say that Peter, because Peter means rock, they're saying, well, he's building it on Peter. And others say, well, no, he's not building it on Peter. He's building it on the proclamation that Peter just made, the confession that you are, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which one is it? And you go back and forth. I think the clue is actually found back in Matthew chapter 7. Can I teach for two minutes? Are you ready just for some two minutes of like deeper thinking? Is that all right? Who's with me? Are we there? We going okay? In Matthew chapter 7, what we read, what we spoke about before, when Jesus says, anyone who hears these wise words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on a rock. That is the Greek word Petra. Everyone say Petra. When Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, he says, I tell you you are Peter, that is the Greek word Petros. Everyone say Petros. And he says, and on this rock, Greek word Petra, I will build my church. Did you catch it? I see, I see what, like, you've got to understand Matthew is writing something complete. No word is wasted. It's not like he's just writing willy-nilly memoirs. He's deliberate, he's direct, writing to a Jewish audience. The link between Matthew 7 and Matthew 16 is significant. He's saying, he's made a statement here about words, about the power of words, about the nature of words, being like the rock, right? When the disciples hear this in Matthew 16, hey, you're Peter, you're Petros, you're a leader, I'm going to speak into that because in a few chapters' time, you're going to need some affirmation about your leadership after we have the whole denial thing which goes on. So you're going to need some affirmation into the nature of your character and strength and what the call that I have for you within the church. But it's not the man. It's not the apostle which the church is built on. It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's the word, the Petra, that the church is built on. Amen? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, look around you. Look at the churches around the world. When you see all the different churches, there is literally... One thing that unites us all, a powerful confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That must and always should be the foundation. The moment a church decides that something else is more important, that something else is more foundational, that church will implode. Good doctrine is important, but it's not the foundation. Spiritual gifts are important, but they're not the foundation. How we do worship is important, but it's not the foundation. Are you with me? Community is important, but it's not the foundation. All of those things are facets of the gospel. But if we ever turn a facet into a foundation, the house will crumble. What we need to know that the foundation, the thing on which we stand, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If we agree on that, and if we stand firm on that, all the other conversations can happen. But rather than it being, you must believe what I believe, or you are out, it becomes a conversation of, hey, that's a really interesting way of seeing things. Let's talk about it. It means we can walk hand in hand, even when we don't see eye to eye. It means we can disagree without being disagreeable. 
It means we can actually love each other even when we don't necessarily like each other. And this is the strength of the church because that, friends, is unity. Amen. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not all looking exactly the same, having to fit into the one cookie-cutter box. For goodness sakes, look at this church. I love this church because we have like nine or ten different denominations. Some of you are even Baptists. I don't even know what I am. I'm like a mix of, I'm Methodist Baptist call or something. I don't know what I am. But that's the beauty of this church, and this is what I'm going to fight with all of my heart. Now, eldership are going to fight and fight and fight to preserve that we rest on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And guess what the Bible says? Unity commands a blessing. If we decide to genuinely walk in unity we will see an outpouring of blessing from God. Not just for us, but favor in our community. We will begin to see our world truly transformed because Jesus is being glorified and hope is being revealed in our world because they are seeing a church that is not tearing each other down, that is not constantly bickering and arguing, but has learned to behave like adults and showing that unity is actually maturity. And in that is powerful, powerful blessing. Oh, I could preach on that for a while, but I'm not going to. Finally, last thing, band, you can come up. So we see what the church is built on. And then we get to see, lastly, what the church is built for. Purpose. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, when the church lives in that unity... When the church learns to say, hey, we don't necessarily see eye to eye with everything, but let's talk about it. Let's stretch each other. Let's challenge each other. Let's grow. Heck, I might even have to change some of my views on some things as I learn. And that is totally okay. The more that we do that, the church is actually positioned for its purpose of prevailing against the gates of hell. Now, I want you to see something here. That I only just realized, I just had a revelation of this just the other day. A gate is defensive, not offensive. When was the last time you were walking down the street or going for a jog and a gate jumped out and went whack? Gotcha. Doesn't happen. Because gates are defensive. I remember running for a train one time and there was a fence and a gate and I thought I'm just going to jump over that thing. It was there to stop me from prevailing against it and I tried to jump with a backpack on and I got a little lazy and I caught the edge of my foot and I went flat right on my face on the train tracks and it was hilarious for my friends who were running behind me but that is how a gate prevails against us it is a defensive structure it doesn't advance what does it mean for the church when Jesus is talking about the gates of hell not prevailing the way a gate prevails is it prevents you from advancing So for the gates not to prevail insinuates that the church will advance. The purpose of the church is to kick down the gates, to storm it, to get in there and to start to proclaim truth and hope and rescue souls that are captured in darkness. Come on, somebody. That is why we exist. 
We don't exist for a social club. We exist to kick down the gates of hell because Jesus has promised that they won't prevail against us. What does that mean for us? It means that our direction is determined by purpose, not preference. In this church, there are so many people who wish we did so many things a different way. Heck, even I wish we did some things differently. But it's not about that. It's about purpose. It's about recognizing we're not here for us. We're here to storm the gates. We're here to bring the lost home. We are here to see the blind eyes open. We are here to see the the transformation of the world in which we live. We are here to see disciples growing, to see uh, just people becoming more and more in love with their Savior. And we do that by standing on the solid rock that is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. His grace is sufficient for us in all things, in all things. So whether you like coffee or whether you like raising your hands or whether you like sitting still or whether you wish we were with a steeple in a carpeted building with incense, I don't know. Everything we are doing is designed to kick down the gates of hell. Everything. To see lives transformed, to see Jesus glorified, and to see hope revealed. So how about as a church, as we enter 2020, that's what we keep our eyes on. What does the writer of the Hebrews say? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What if we set our feet on the rock? What if we engaged in those conversations, not with a tension or a difficulty, but what if we just loved each other? What if we just went, yep, that's the thing that unites us. That's the thing that keeps us safe. That's the thing that we all agree on. Now let's charge forward arm in arm growing together in unity. And I'll tell you something, that this building will nowhere near be enough. And some of you don't like that. Some of you are like, no, I like my little church. That's okay. God likes a big church. There's three billion people at the moment, or two point whatever billion there is in his church, in his ecclesia. And he's pretty keen to see the Adelaide Hills saved. Anyone else? I said, anyone else? That's why we're here. So let's keep, you know, ah, oh, just, I've got to stop. God's good, amen? And he's given us a mission, so let's go and be missional. Let's stand to our feet. And as I said at the beginning, if you're someone in this room and you've been thinking about this Jesus and you've never, you've never actually said, you know what, I'm in. Let me tell you something. If this decision was purely just evidence-based, every person in the world would be a Christian because the evidence is overwhelming, right? And so God will give you the evidence and we can go through the evidence, but it has to be a revelation. And if you are feeling that just that touch on your spirit where you're saying, I want to know this Jesus more. There's something about this Jesus. And you've been thinking about that for a while. I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes. I'm not going to ask anyone to come forward. I'm just going to ask you to pop your hand up. And if that's you, I want to pray with you and encourage you in the decision that you're about to make to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So if that's you around the room, I just want to invite you to pop your hand up. I'd love to pray for you. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Awesome. Amen. All right, church, we've got some people that we need to pray for. So we're all going to pray this together with one loud voice as we surrender our lives to Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Come on, church. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the salvation that is mine in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I receive you as Lord and Saviour of my life. Set me apart for purpose. Connect me to community and lead me throughout my life. I'm yours and you are mine forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's give God a shout of praise. And if you said that prayer, we would love to catch up with you after, just in the quiet, not in the big public spectacle, because it's not about that. It's about you and Jesus. You want to get a Bible in your hands and encourage you. Church, I love you. Thanks for listening to me. I know I've been a bit scatty this morning just because there's been a lot going on and I just had something burning in my heart that I wanted to yell at you. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's it. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.